I'm Daniel Scarpinato. My friends call me Scarp. I've been blessed to have a really great career in journalism, media, and politics. Along the way, I've become friends and, I would say, frenemies with some of the most interesting people. Some of them are famous, some infamous, and some completely unknown. We're turning on the mics now to discuss people, politics, and, well, pretty much everything else. So please sit back, relax, grab a drink, jump on the treadmill, whatever. Please enjoy the show. Hey, it's great to be back for another episode of Scarp and Friends. And we'll get better at posting this every week. I've had a few people uh, the last week come up and say, God, we've just been dying for another episode. What's up? And the, the reality is it's just so busy right now with the election right around the corner. But the good news is there's plenty to talk about. And the big thing that happened this week was around the ESA program, the empowerment scholarship accounts. And this has been big national news that Arizona led the nation. In fact, Arizona actually has now passed the most aggressive school choice bill in the country, in the entire history of the United States. And everyone's talked for years about money should follow the kid and parents should be able to send their their child to any school that they want. And now they can with these universal ESAs, as they're called. And this, for whatever reason, makes a lot of people's heads explode. They don't want parents to decide where to send their kids to school. I don't really understand it, but there's a big contingency of people on the left who have a problem with this, and they come up with all kinds of arguments that basically just aren't true. But bottom line is that the way this worked is is, uh, the uh, law was set to take effect. The organizers against it had the opportunity to submit signatures that would have paused the law and uh, put it on the ballot. So Arizona voters would have decided in 2024. So for two years, this law would have been stalled. So we've had now thousands of families. I hope, hopefully I'm explaining this right, but thousands of families wanting to send their kid to the school of their choice. And all of that was going to be put on hold. And it would have gone on the ballot in 2024. So the organizers last Friday come down to the Capitol. It's the deadline to do this. They've got all these boxes full of, they said, signatures. And they gave an exact number, uh, 141,714 signatures is what they said they were going to submit. They needed 118,823. So they had about, they said they had about 23,000 more than they were required to have. And this is important because then these signatures get validated, blah, blah, blah. They figure out if there's, you know, the, the, if the signatures are valid, if the addresses are right. So this already would have meant they would have had to have like a, 85% validity right. Long story short, 
as the counting started, it became clear they didn't have 141,714 signatures. They didn't have 118,823 signatures. They didn't even have 89,000 signatures. Now, we still don't know how many they had, but the number keeps going down. And the bottom line is they don't have enough. They've admitted they don't have enough. And this begs a couple important questions. Number one, why did they make this number up? I mean, now they're like, oh, okay, well, this was a guesstimate. You know, we just counted up all the sheets and the boxes and, you know, did some fuzzy math and came up with this. Well, why cite a specific number if it's a guesstimate? I think that's highly suspicious. The other question is, why is the law, the law is now paused. Just because they had a press conference, the law is paused. And the fact of the matter is that the Secretary of State, who's Katie Hobbs, who also happens to be the Democratic nominee for governor, has the ability to come out and say they didn't have the signatures and the law is going to take effect. So Governor Ducey had a big press conference, called on on this to let's just move forward with this. I mean, what are we waiting for? There's families who are waiting for these scholarships. And there's a lot of families who who are counting on this. And the fact is, and this these arguments just drive me crazy, some of them. You know, now you've got some folks in the media and on the left saying, oh, oh well, a bunch of the people who, you know, filed for these, their kids are already in these schools. So, you know, oh, this is a big scandal. No, it's not. There's a lot of families who are struggling to get by and to send their kids to the school of their choice. So I think that's a kind of a nonsense argument. Bottom line is this is happening in the state of Arizona. It's not if, it's when. And I, I think the Secretary of State needs to allow this to move forward. I think there's going to be litigation if it doesn't happen and it doesn't happen ASAP. A lot of people are saying this is Governor Ducey's legacy. I mean, it's kind of hard to pick. Flat tax, lowest flat tax in the nation, historic water deal to deal with that crisis. Uh, and then this on top of it, along with, you know, everything else that's that's unfolded these last eight years. So um, I think it could be. And the, the good news is it's going to happen now. Speaking of Katie Hobbs, she's in a very close race with Carrie Lake. Uh, we've talked about some of the, the polling previously. It remains really tight. The thing that's so surprising to me about this is there's been like zero movement on this race since right after the primary. Every poll has it tied with very few undecided voters. Uh, it's at, you know, 49-48, 48-48, 47-48, 49-48. So I think this is going to stay very close. Um, I think you're starting to see, you know, a lot more advertising on this race. Carrie Lake was up with a new uh, ad that I, I thought was a, a good ad. I think it will remind people of her time um, on uh, Channel 10 here here in uh, here in Arizona. Um, but I think this is going to remain a really 
tight, close race uh, right until right until the end. And, you know, it's interesting because obviously, as we talked about on a couple prior shows, Katie Hobbs is refusing to debate Carrie Lake. She's she's said she's not going to do that. The Clean Elections Commission basically said, you know, she wanted to do this weird thing where they both come in and present separately. And uh, the Clean Elections Commission said you can't do that. But there's been a couple other debates on other races lately that uh, have been really fascinating. One was for the uh, the open congressional seat in Southern Arizona. And this seat is currently held by Ann Kirkpatrick, who um, I think lives in central Phoenix, but has represented a district in Flagstaff and now Tucson. So she gets her, her way around the state. She's retiring so she can spend more time in downtown Phoenix. And it's an open seat race between Juan Siscomani, Republican, good friend of, uh, of mine, and Kirsten Angle, who's a former state legislator. And this race has gotten national attention. This is a race that will determine which party controls Congress. And they had a debate. It was in uh, Pinal County, which is kind of a forgotten county with these congressional seats. It has been scooped into different places. It's been coupled with northern Arizona, even though it's in central Arizona. Now it's been put with southern Arizona. They've long been ignored. There was a debate in this race this past week, and both candidates confirmed their attendance, both Juan Siscomani and Kirsten Angle, and long behold, the the debate starts, everyone tunes in, and Kirsten Angle is missing. She's not there. And the, this was actually hosted by the newspaper in Pinal County, the Casa Grande Dispatch. And the, the publisher, the paper, is just sitting there. He's like, well, we don't know where she is. She didn't show up. She confirmed. So we're just going to start. And uh, so Juan Siscomani gives his opening. <laughs> he answers all the questions. He gives his closing. And in 20 minutes, the quote-unquote debate is over. And it's just really interesting to me, you know, Blake Wilson, who's uh, here with me, who uh, makes all this happen with Scarp and Friends. Blake, it's just kind of interesting to me how the Democrats are dodging and ducking these debates i guess at least with katie hobbs she came out and said i don't want to debate and then with kirsten angle she just decides not to show up i mean what i just don't know what to make of all this well democrats nowadays would just prefer to sit in their basement and talk <laughs> about abortion that's pretty much the the path that a lot of them are taking. it's not even just an arizona issue even though you look at John Fetterman out in Pennsylvania or, you know, all these other people across the country and Democrats just refuse to put their ideas to the test, to to open engagement. Uh, the media is not going to do it. So it's up to Republicans that they don't want to they don't want to engage. Yeah, it's really I, 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 I don't get it, especially because the Democrats used to be all about the media and defending the media and then the newspaper holds a debate in a pretty important community and i would say if i lived in this community i'd be like wow you're not you know i'm not important enough 
for Kirsten Angle to leave her enclave at the University of Arizona or wherever it is that she hangs out and, and actually come and answer questions in my community. I think it's a slap in the face and I think it's a really bad look and I, I just, um, I think you're gonna see more of this because, and you did see it, actually when you look at both of the Senate races, the last two cycles, it worked. It worked. Uh, Kirsten Cinema and Mark Kelly really didn't campaign, and there were actually some national articles written about this. They just ran big TV ads, and it worked. I don't think it's going to work this cycle because I think people are onto it and are paying more attention. The other debate that happened was between Rachel Mitchell and Julie Gunnickel for Maricopa County Attorney. I actually think this may be one of the most important races on the ballot this year because Maricopa County is massive. It's, you know, what, 70% of our state. And I think that it's important to have somebody who is sane in this position. Otherwise, when you look at, we already are seeing huge increases in crime and homicides. I think Julie Gunnickel, who... Listen, there's a lot of... I'm not trying to be partisan here. The fact is is that um, I we've had Democrats on here. I have a lot of friends who are Democrats. I don't have anything against Democrats. I do think Julie Gunnickel has positioned herself so far outside the extreme. Um, and frankly, Rachel Mitchell, really, I thought in... She's now had two debates with her, has really just taken her apart i mean i think it's almost like not even a contest and blake i know you know you've been following this closely too and i i just think rachel mitchell's done a really good job it shouldn't be a surprise she is a prosecutor and i think she's really prosecuted the case for why julie gunnickel would be bad for um for maricopa county well there's few prosecutors that are as good as Rachel Mitchell in all of Maricopa County, let alone the entire state, maybe even the country. Uh, but this isn't her first rodeo. She knows how to, she knows how to take arguments apart bit by bit. And when it comes to Julie Gunnigal, she, you know, she's just another uh, caricature of like the, the guy who in San Francisco who got recalled, uh, Chessa Bowden. I, I don't know if I'm doing that justice, but these far left right. prosecutors that just choose to ignore the laws that they don't want to have, that they just disagree with. Their job is not to pick and choose or be political. Their job is to enforce the laws that are on the books for the sake of our community and our constituents. Not Julie Gunnickel, because she has specifically said she will not endorse law or she will not enforce laws that she doesn't like. So she really... And you're right, this isn't Rachel Mitchell's first rodeo. It is Julie Gunnickel's in the sense that she's never been a prosecutor. And she wants to be the top prosecutor in one of the largest prosecutorial agencies in the country. I think that uh, I think that's going to be really challenging. Um, but she's going to get a lot of support because I think you're right, Blake. I think that... Uh, for the left, these they've kind of focused their 
their um, their attention on some of these types of positions because they think that they can really get a lot of progressive policies done through these county attorney DA positions throughout the country. Yeah, it's nice to be an activist when you're in college, but at some point you have to grow up and be a lawyer if you're going to be a lawyer <laughs> and actually prosecute the laws. One f- funny thing, actually, and this was I didn't even realize this, Chris Mays, uh, who's running for attorney general, has never practiced law. That just came out recently. And uh, and one thing she has done is she was the governor, Governor Napolitano's spokesperson and communications director. And I can say, having been a gubernatorial comms director and spokesperson, I'm not qualified to be attorney general of the state of Arizona. And I'm not sure that that qualifies one to be, uh, to be AG, but I guess she does. She thinks it does. She doesn't think that, uh, she's honestly never, I didn't know that. I mean, I've known her a long time. That was shocking to me that you would run for AG and never even have practiced law. I agree with all your legal opinions. Speaking of spokespeople, Jen Psaki, former White House uh, communications director, spokesperson, now a pundit on CNN, she came out the other day, and this kind of ties in with everything we're talking about, and said, if crime is the big issue, then Democrats are going to have a hard time winning. And, you know, we talked a couple weeks ago about... Democrats need to be, or I'm sorry, Republicans should be talking more about the economy. Um, I think they should be talking about this as well. And I think Rachel Mitchell really laid out the case in this last debate uh, for how to talk about this issue in a way that I think can be appealing to a lot of voters. So I think Jen Psaki, Democrat, I mean, she, I think, has uh, some good insight here. And frankly, I think you know, candidates should be looking at that and thinking about that. And it is an issue here in Arizona. We have seen uh, record homicide rates in, in Phoenix and and Tucson. So um, I think she's on to something. We're going to be back right back with a really good friend of mine to talk about her new job. We'll, we'll talk to you in a few minutes. All right. Well, now for something completely different. Uh, one of my best friends, uh, Katie Ratliff, who is joining us. Katie, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Of course. And so excited. Uh, there was a, another big announcement this week that, Katie, you're going to be leading the Common Sense Institute Arizona as executive director. Congratulations. Thank you so much. And uh, it's a great announcement. You're going to stay with the governor uh, as his deputy chief of staff lights off through the end of the administration and then start this new role in January. Tell our audience about Common Sense Institute. Well, thanks, Scarp, for having me. And yes, I'm thrilled that I'm going to be able to stay through the end of the term. For those who weren't paying attention, there was a lot of really big stuff that happened this year. Um, And so it's really important to me to be able to see that through, Mm -hmm. make sure everything is implemented with fidelity, turn off the lights, take the veto stamp with me on the way out, and then start this new (laughs) job in January. 
Um, the Common Sense Institute is a nonpartisan think tank that is focused on producing really high-quality public policy reports um, that focuses a lot on the economy, free enterprise, the fiscal and economic impact of different policies uh, and issues that the state is facing. And I'm really excited about it. My, as you know, my passion has always been public policy. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm thrilled about the opportunity to lead an organization like this. Well, and I'm thrilled for you. I think it's a perfect fit. And you know, for those uh, who don't know your full background, you have been involved in so much here in the state of Arizona. You ran the Arizona uh, Chamber Foundation prior to joining Governor Ducey in uh, what year was that? 2016. 2016. So um, first term and have now been leading policy, legislative affairs, um, a, a really a, a big portfolio. Talk to us about this session and um, I mean it was such a huge victory for uh, for the state and uh, so much good that was done. So talk to us about that. Well, it is hard to believe that it's been six years now that I've been in the governor's office. When I started, it was about halfway through the first term. And it just felt like so much big stuff had already been done. You guys had made it through that first budget, closing a billion-dollar deficit. Um, You passed the American Civics Act, was the very first bill the governor signed. And I was just like, man, how are they going to top this every year? And there's always so much to do. And that was the case this session as well. The big difference this session was we had a lot of money and a lot of big problems to solve. The biggest of which is what's gonna happen with our water future, Mm -hmm. with our water resiliency. And so we were able to work with both Republican and Democratic leaders to come up with a billion dollar proposal. Um, It actually clocked in at about 1.4 billion when the whole deal was done, Um, passed nearly unanimously to start to find other sources of water, to conserve additional water, to invest in technology and innovation that will result in us using less water um, of the resources that we have. So that was a huge issue that we worked on throughout the session, um, mostly kind of behind the scenes. You know, there were a lot of meetings that were taking place. We had a bill draft out there, but the final language came together really in that last day. And it was kind of a hectic last few days of session. You know, we did the budget. We came back and did the water deal, the ESA Mm -hmm. bill. And then we were, I was actually in the Senate when the protesters sort of descended on the building and then they had to evacuate. And, you know, so many props to Senate President Karen Fan and to her staff especially for being nimble and just getting everyone out, keeping everyone safe, but then figure out a way to end the session that night. You know, we assembled in that old hearing room Mm -hmm. and finished out the day. And so it was it was a very impressive effort, but it was a very weird kind of end. Now, um, it really was. And uh, I remember texting with you guys and just being like, are you are you guys safe? Is everything okay down there? And you were. Talk to us about water, because it's a topic that I think a lot of people are getting more interested in because there's been so much publicity about about the potential 
uh, crisis that we face with water. You're someone who actually knows about the topic. You've spent a lot of time on this. I actually think you're probably one of the smartest people in the state of Arizona on what is a very complex topic. Talk to us about what the real situation is on water and how we how we best tackle it. That's a pretty big question, Star. <laughs> how much wine do you have in this office? Um, it's complicated. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the reason that a lot of people kind of shy away from the policy issue um, because it's it's really hard to understand. I feel like I'm still learning so much every day. I'm not even close to what are called the so-called water buffaloes, the people who know a lot about this yeah. issue. Um, but part of the problem is that it's very regional. It depends where you're coming from. And I think a lot of people see when they think about water, they see the news about the Colorado River, mm-hmm. um, which is bad. But that's not the state's only water source. And in fact, there are a lot of parts of the state that don't get any Colorado River mm-hmm. water. They're not relying on it at all. So I think the whole point of this session and everything that we wanted to do on water was to just continue to diversify that portfolio. You know, everyone knows a more diverse investment portfolio is better. You can ride out you know, difficult times more easily. That's kind of what we're dealing with right now in water. Right. This one part of our portfolio is really troubled asset. <laughs> and yeah. we've got to figure out the long term. We've got to come together with the other basin states and come up with some solutions. Um, but we also have groundwater issues that um, I think need to be addressed. But the main problem is we just need more water. Mm-hmm. We just need a more diverse portfolio. So... Common Sense Institute, which is a great organization, it um, it it truly is nonpartisan. The board is made up of a lot of great people, including uh, Congressman Jim Colby, who represented Southern Arizona for I think 18 years, and truly is I think a voice of reason and rational thought. And, in, and of now a political independent, Lisa Graham Keegan, also, I think, a political uh, independent now, um, and a host of other just stellar individuals from our business community on both sides of the aisle. Uh, you've got uh, a great model in place where you bring Republicans and Democrats together. I think there's a project underway. We had Senator Bowie on our last show Senator Bowie, Democratic senator, working with former Republican Mayor Jen Daniels on a housing report. So, you know, this really feels like it's up your alley because you, um, you know, I've been in, I think, more positions where maybe I have been on one side of the aisle or the other. And you truly are someone who um, who has really been focused on policy, on good public policy, no matter you know, who's proposing it. And you've got such great relationships with Republicans and Democrats. And what struck me about your announcement was that it was lauded by people on both sides of the aisle. Cesar Chavez, a Democratic uh, representative in the legislature, you know, you had him on on kind of one end and, and Governor Ducey on the other. And so... Talk to us about, you know, with all the partisanship out there, how you're able to be down at the Capitol, 
and build and maintain these relationships? Well, you know, I started my sort of political career at the Arizona Chamber of Commerce and Industry. And I sort of cut my teeth on the notion that as long as everyone cares about, you know, economic prosperity Mm -hmm. and opportunity for all, we can all agree on that. And so let's start there. And we may disagree on how to get there, on what opportunity looks like. Um, That's what attracted me to want to work for the governor was his 2014 message of opportunity for all, you know, wanting to make the state better um, for everyone who lives here, who wants to move here, raise a family here. Um, And the thing about the Capitol is most of the bills that pass are bipartisan. Mm -hmm. Um, In fact, a supermajority of the bills that pass are unanimous. Mm -hmm. And that's always, you know, whenever we talk to the interns at the end of session and say, what surprised you the most? That's always what they say. Oh, I thought everything that happened down here was hyper partisan and there was all this fighting. And when you sit up in the gallery and you watch legislators move around the chamber floor, they're all talking to each other. They're all asking about each other's kids and what they did the night before. And most of the bills that go up on the board pass with um, you know, bipartisan support, nearly unanimous support. There, there's just a hyper focus on the few things that don't. Mm-hmm. And so when you're down at the Capitol, it's actually, it comes naturally, I think, because that's how you, it's, it's a personal business and you develop personal relationships with people regardless of their politics. Well, I think you're completely right. And, you know, we're in campaign season now. So as we talked about on before you got here about some of these races, but ultimately the races will get decided somebody will win on either side of all of these things and then the governing starts and and um how do you see common sense institute fitting in to that landscape how can this organization help those who do get elected on both sides of the aisle uh be effective at governing That's a really good question, and I think that is a role that common sense can and should and will play, because governing is not really a partisan business. You know, you and I know that from our time Mm -hmm. in the governor's office. Problems that get presented to you don't necessarily have a partisan bent to them. They're just, it's a problem you got to solve. And there has been tremendous, tremendous economic growth over the last eight years, tremendous growth and opportunity. And all of that could change. You know, policy matters. Look at California. So I think there will be new problems that will be presented to whoever is in the governor's office next year that could slow down or inhibit that growth. I think water certainly is a big one. Um, Housing, homelessness, access to high-quality education. Um, And where I think common sense can play a role is helping to frame the issue in a way that is not partisan, that is based on facts, that is based on a rigorous economic analysis of a path forward, you know, and presenting solutions that both sides of the aisle can get around. Because as you and I both know, when you're trying to get something through the legislature, you're just trying to count to 31 and 16. Yep. And it's faster if you can count from both sides of the aisle. And it's even easier if you can get to supermajorities. And so presenting bipartisan solutions really should be in everyone's best interest. Um, And that's what common sense will be presenting. And really, when you look at that issue set that you just laid out, I do think 
those are the top issues that are facing the state. And I think compared with challenges of the past, they really are not partisan issues. I mean, people on both sides can agree homelessness is a problem. And I actually think there is a lot of room and opportunity there for consensus. But I think you're right that if people aren't even operating with the same set of facts, it becomes really tough. And there's so much noise, so many different special interest groups and people who are kind of pushing out their own information that I, I think maybe this could serve as as a vehicle for some information and facts and data that maybe a uh, coalition of of reasonable, willing people could actually agree on? Absolutely. And, you know, you bring up a really good point. My own family will ask me all the time. They'll say, you know, hey, I read this in the paper. Is this true? Mm -hmm. And I'll say, no, it's not. Here's what's really going on. And they'll say, well, where can I go Mm -hmm. to just, like, get information straight up, just the facts about what's going on in a way that doesn't have an agenda, some sort of partisan bend to it? Like, where, where do I find this kind of thing? And it's hard to think of a good place to send them. And so that's what I hope common sense will be. What policy issue are you most passionate about? Gosh, that's like asking someone to pick their favorite kid. I love them all. Um, I, I'm most passionate. What motivates me are things that improve opportunity for mm-hmm. people. Um, I love, you know, education policy through the lens of improving opportunity, improving access to really high quality things that work for individual kids. Um, I'm gotten super interested in all of the water stuff over the last several years. Um, I like the, you know, licensing reform Mm -hmm. stuff too, because I, I just think that is one of the most difficult things about starting out in your career is I've got to get this license. I got to pay money to this board and they're going to want all this background information. And how do I get myself together and and get through all this? So there are, yeah, those are probably the top three. What, uh, you are always so composed and you (laughs) have, you have such a stressful job. I mean, I know from having been up there and also working with you very, very closely for years, and in some very tense moments where maybe I wasn't as quite as cool as you were uh, in moments of crises, how do you, is that the attorney in you? You have a law degree. Is it, is it just your nature? How do you stay so even keeled? Because you've really been, I think, a calming force for, for the governor, for staff in the governor's office, uh, for your colleagues, and probably for people in the legislature. Well, that's very nice, Scar. But you were always cool. Oh yeah, right. You were always collected. You were always throwing things. (laughs) Um, I don't know. That's a hard question. I, for me, something that's always been important is um, how do you ground yourself outside of your job? Mm -hmm. Because these jobs are hard. They can be heavy, mm-hmm. and they're temporary. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, on my first day in the governor's office, I knew at most I'd get six years. So, how can you make sure that on your last day in the office, you still recognize yourself? 
Um, and figuring out what those things are has always been a huge help to me. You know, it was uh, actually earlier this year, and I was in a, up there meeting with you guys on, on an issue. It may have been around the state of the state, and I looked around the room. It was senior staff, and I said, I'm the only white guy in this room. And it really, to me, I think, and I th almost think this is maybe something people have taken for granted or not really. It just kind of happened organically. But this governor has really brought so much diversity into state government and particularly into the governor's office. And I think a lot of strong, uh, powerful women that have run the state government, his office, you've been part of that. Um, what I, I just really want your thoughts on how do I, I was asked recently, we, there was a group that was here from Israel and they were asking about women in politics, women in policy to this panel that included actually Dr. Kara Christ. And I, I, it did strike me that the majority of voters are now women. I mean, they have been for some time. The majority of college graduates are women. Um, how do we get more women involved in public policy and in these leadership positions? Obviously, the governor, I think, has very had done has really you know been a model for for that. But uh, it seems like something that is worthy of continuing. Yeah, that's. A great point. And, you know, it's one of the things that makes me feel lucky to live and to have grown up in Arizona. You know, my family moved here in 1988 for most of my life that I can remember. And mm -hmm. after we moved here, Arizona had a woman governor. Mm -hmm. and, and we will again, and no matter again. what happens. That's right. Yeah. So and, you know, there were the years of the Fab Five where all of our statewide <laughs> yes. elected were women. And so I do think we have a history as mm -hmm. a state of women leaders in the area of public policy. Um, but I think it's something that you just have to be constantly vigilant about talking to young women, explaining what this career is like, what it's like to be a woman in politics, um, either in an elected position or serving. For the governor, he's just so interested in meritocracy. Mm -hmm. Like he wants the best people the most energized, the most interested. And so I think merit attracts merit. Mm -hmm. You know, you have really high performing, awesome, can I say kick ass on the show? Yeah, of course. Kick ass <laughs> women uh, on the ninth floor that attracts more. Yeah. And so I think he's really done um, a lot to show younger women that this is a career where you can have a family. Mm -hmm. You can, you know, do everything you want, um, but, and really be in a leadership position. Yeah, no, I think it is. I really actually, we were talking about his legacy. I think that that is, should be part of his legacy because um, I even think just all the new young people who have, who have, I mean, eight years is a long time. And it's like a decade. And I think that um, there's so many people who um, obviously Governor Brewer is a great friend to this show. A lot of her team are people who were mentors to me. 
But I think, you know, this administration was really a lot of new people who uh, kind of a new generation of leaders. Um, and, you know, there'll be another one after this. But I think it, 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 it you there's going to be juicy people everywhere because there's been so many people who have now come of age through this administration under the governor's leadership. Well, Scarp, talking about the transition, you know, mm-hmm. you came to the governor's office um, after the governor was elected in 2014. You were a part of that mm-hmm. transition. What is your advice for the new administration mm-hmm. as they come in and they get started? And as you know, they only have a couple of months to get their arms around the state budget, state of the state, uh, a legislative agenda. Where do you start? I know. Oh, my God. I, I <laughs> To relive it. It was very, it's very stressful, um, and it's almost impossible to, uh, to I think, um, encapsulate <laughs> that in an answer. But, um, yeah, I think figuring out, okay, how do you digest this in manageable chunks? And I think, you know, the buckets would be, um, you know, populating the government, and agency directors and getting the right people in the right positions. Uh, the policy agenda, I think, is really important of figuring out, okay, what did we say on the campaign? What were our promises? And how do we translate this into actual legislation? Uh, and it's that shift from campaigning to governing that is very challenging. I think it's the, the speeches would be another bucket, the inaugural address and the state of the state, which obviously is then informed by that policy agenda. Um, and the event, the actual inauguration, and unlike, you know, the presidency or some other states where they have some commission that is state funded that does all this, you actually have to go out and raise money and plan all this. And our good friend Ryan O'Daniel did all this for us in, uh, in 2014, 2015. So there's a lot of big tasks, and I think if you can manage them into bite-sized pieces, get the right people on the job for, for each of those. Um, and you know, then there's gonna be so many people who are interested in being a part of a new administration, you know, that want jobs, that wanna be helpful, um, or that have ideas and figuring out how to funnel all that information and make sure that you're capturing it because you do need talent and you do need great people. So I think that uh, it's a it's a tall order, especially to get it done in, you know, six weeks. Um, but I think if, you know, I were to go back and say, what would we have done differently? Um, I actually think the the populating agency heads is one that is worth taking more time on there you don't need to have everybody day one there are good people within state government there's certainly great people there now i think many of them would like to continue serving at many of these agencies as we learned there are great deputy directors who or people um like uh Who's the guy? <laughs> we'll have to fix this a little. At DES, who's the director? Michael Weishart. There's there's 
people like Michael Weishard at DES, who had been there for 20 years under like 15 different directors, none of whom had ever been from the agency. And then, you know, we discovered there's this great guy who's super qualified and, and a great leader within the agency. So, um, so that would be my thought. That's a long answer to your question, but I think that it's a it's a big big task to especially after you've come out of you know a grueling campaign and so you also need some fresh people i think who maybe you know are energized who know a little bit more about state government than maybe the the campaign did um but it's a great opportunity it's a lot of fun and uh and i wish them luck do you remember where you were exactly when you got the call that they wanted you to join the Ducey administration? Yeah, well, I think we talked about part of this uh, on a prior show, but I had been getting calls from Danny Seiden, and he was making the case for me to you know, come back out. You should come back out, work for the governor, and it was the Sunday before the election, um, I was in DC and I got a call from him and he, you know, is very persuasive. And I finally said, you know, he, he basically said the, the, you know, Doug at that time is going to probably call you and offer this to you. Are you going to accept it? And, and I said, yes, I'm very excited about it. And were then you in your apartment when you got the call or were you like out at a restaurant? Where I was were you? at, um, I was at. The, uh, the Hawk and Dove, which oh. is a, a bar, a, a watering hole on Capitol Hill. And my apartment actually was behind that in the alley across from, uh, like on the, uh, right behind that. Um, and, and then I think it was the Thursday. So it was two days after Doug Ducey won and became Governor Ducey. And I was walking a lunch uh, with my coworkers at the NRCC down to, um, down to, and that, that will fit in the popping of that bottle into this part because we were walking down to, that's a hefty pour, Blake, bartender Blake. We were walking down uh, to lunch on Eastern Market, and my phone started to ring, and it said Doug Ducey. And they were all like, oh, my God, you got to take that. <laughs> so I took the call. He offered me the job. He said, we're so excited to have you out. You're the first hire. Um, and I went up to lunch with my friends and told them, and they, like, ordered a bottle of champagne, and we celebrated. So, And then I was on a plane out uh, the following Monday. Uh, a, I think the, it was a flight at a BWI. <laughs> So I got on the Amtrak to Baltimore <laughs> at like 4 a.m., took a Southwest flight, landed at 9 a.m. in Arizona. All they had left was a minivan at Enterprise Rent-A-Car, drove to the campaign office or to the transition office, and it was just a million miles a minute. Basically, from that moment until... September 2nd, 2021, when I left the governor's office. So it was, I don't think I had any clue what I was getting into when I took that call and accepted. What do you miss the most? Well, 
you and others in in on the team quite frankly i mean i just love the camaraderie of our team our team evolved over time i think you know i was actually the only person from the watch out katie (laughs) i think i was the only person from the day one senior staff who was still there when i left and uh but we had such a great culture such a great team driven by the governor that it was almost as if nothing had changed because i felt like as the team evolved and transitioned we just always had that same camaraderie so i miss that a lot but i get to see you guys all the time and have you on here so it uh you know I, that's been that's been helpful to to uh to get through the the transition that is one of the best parts is the relationships that you build because you know you spend a lot of late nights together um you eat a lot of dinners around conference room tables what was your favorite thing to order when we had to stay late night for dinner um hmm i think that there was no good options. I think I preferred <laughs> when probably just pizza from NYPD pizza. But if not that, when we, I think it was better when we'd like leave and go get ramen or, or, you know, uh, burgers or something. Cause there was really no place good to order. What about you? Uh, that's a good point. That ramen, when they put it in that ramen place by Pita jungle, that was a game changer. Yeah. Wasn't us, it? I felt like, yeah. Cause that was kind of a fun place we could go and get away um my favorite moment though particularly a signy die moment was when i fell asleep (laughs) on the couch in my office and katie and i think gretchen came to fetch me and i (laughs) was quite startled i think right in the middle of the night I think the first time we came because we needed you. The second time we came because we just wanted to see you scream. <laughs> oh gosh! Well, there was there wasn't too much screaming. <laughs> just when I was when I was sleeping. Just when you were startled. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, uh, this has been a blast, and we really appreciate you you popping in, uh, sharing with us some of the highlights of the session and uh, what to expect from the Common Sense Institute. So once again, congratulations, and you're welcome back anytime. Thanks, Scarp. I had fun. It was good to see you. You too. Thanks. Hey, it's Scarp. Thanks so much for tuning in. Please subscribe to listen to all of our new episodes.